0: Hello, and welcome to Vet Club and another episode of our journal club. And I'm um, pretty excited um, to, to kind of have this going. It's been going pretty well. Um, and I just realized that my new sound effect, apparently you have to choose a soundboard at the beginning and that I don't have access to my new Aww. sounds. Oh, no. So, suspense. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to save that for the next one. Um, and today we're going to play... I forgot to turn that one off. <laughs> it really makes a difference when Topher is is here to do the producing. Apologies to everybody, but it'll make him feel better about himself. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna save the extra fancy sound effects until next time. I'm sure you're all on pins and needles. Um, so welcome to the second of our kind of revamped, uh, you know, new Journal Club, and um, we have returning guests and we have new guests. And so Dr. David Grant was here last week and is here again. Welcome. And we have Dr. Rayanne Foster with us today. Um, This is your first time on the podcast at all, right? Okay. I was like, I didn't think I'd had you on before. But so welcome. Um, And let's just get to it. So we have two articles for this week, the theme being Pyothorax. And the first article um, that I want to talk about is um, the older article. That's the one that came off of the additional articles list for the emergency critical care crew, I'm pretty sure. Regardless, this is, this is the first article I'm going to talk about. So mm-hmm. it's um, Computed Tomographic Findings in Canine Pyothorax and Correlation with Findings at Exploratory Thoracotomy um, by Swinburne et al. So um, I guess the, the other one that we will talk about a little bit later. Maybe we'll talk about it kind of simultaneously, but it's short and long-term outcome in cats diagnosed with pyothorax, 47 cases. Um, Now this one was published um, just last year in March of 2021. The first one, the CT one was purchased, was um, published over 10 years ago now in 2011. Both of these are in the journal of small animal practice, which I thought was just an interesting coincidence that apparently Mm -hmm. they seem to be the journal that wants to talk about Pyothorax. So thanks for that, because we need we need more information. But so the CT study, they were basically the the purported point, their objective, I'll just read it, I guess, is to describe the CT findings in canine spontaneous pyothorax and compare them to surgical findings and to assess the utility of CT in guiding case management. So that's what they wanted. And then there's what we got. Okay, so let me just preface this with, I'm probably going to be a little harsh today. Um, Good, but I want I want to make it clear where this is coming from. I am. This is not meant to be a judgment of the people who are doing the research and any of that. Like, it's hard. Like, doing any kind of research is hard, and I respect the heck out of anybody who does it because it takes a ton of work. And then you put yourself out there and you put your work out there and then people tear it to shreds, and that's it sucks if that happens, but this is not an attack on any individual people at all. But I have some complaints um, about um, not necessarily even how the study was conducted, but just what their conclusions were based on the results they gave us. And it sounds like you agree, (laughs) um, David. Mm -hmm. Um, But Ryan, what what was your impression?
1: I guess overall, um, you know, it, it is tough because the N. The number mm-hmm. of cases that we have is so small. Sure. It is hard to draw conclusions. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, overall, canine canine pyothorax is not very common in, sure. from what we see. Um, and and overall, medically, management is the ones that I've seen. Sure. And not surgical. So sure. I guess it's, I agree in that what they found didn't really match what was in the conclusions. Yeah. For, for, as far as is ct going to change what we do right Um, and i have a lot of questions going forward yeah so i mean
0: their basic conclusions were and this is again reading from just the abstract is that ct and surgical findings are similar in most cases of canine spontaneous pyothorax debatable Um, ct may be a useful diagnostic tool for guiding case management also debatable, (laughs) based on what they did. So again, the fact that there isn't much out there, and this isn't very common, is why these types of studies Mm -hmm. are so important. And so I really appreciate that they took the time to dig through the records and give us all this information. And It was really presented well, and we got a lot of good information as far as um, what they found on CT. There's some nice tables, um, some pretty good images. Uh, It really, for me, falls apart when we get to the discussion, and they say, based on what we reported here, this is the take-home message. And I was like, whoa, that was not the take-home message I got. Um, And also, just to mention, we haven't mention the numbers,
1: only 12 dogs.
0: Right. And and again, that's always a problem in veterinary medicine. And I can't flaw them for that in and of itself. Like you, you report what you get. um, But their ability to draw conclusions from that is again, dubious at best. So you you have to be really careful when you do, anytime you do a retrospective study, particularly, like you said, a really small, um, this is really more of a case series honestly, um, than anything. But that's what they did, right? They delved through the records and they just described, you know, what they found when they found dogs that had. So (laughs) the term spontaneous pyothorax is just sort of bothersome for me. I don't know what that means. I don't either. Okay, I've, like, never really heard that, like, anybody else use that term. And so I was already sort of like, wait, what? <laughs> Isn't it always spontaneous? <laughs> or, it, or never Spons spontaneous, depending on how, like, yeah. there's no such thing as just, like, poof, some bacteria popped up in your pleural space and decided to propagate. Like, they came in from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they mean, like, idiopathic, um, which would be a fair term. Like, okay, you got pyothermics, and we don't know why. That's super common. But spontaneous seems like just a weird term.
2: Yeah. There, so I thought that there was There are some odd. other terms in here that I... Flagged. <laughs> um, yeah, I flagged. So, um, you know, they diagnosed um, some of these dogs as having their underlying cause for pyothorax as being chronic and generalized pleuritis. Right. To my knowledge, that's a description of inflammation in the pleura. It's not a disease. Right. Um, they also use the term control radiographs, which I'm not sure what they were, were talking yep. about there. Um, and then they, they bring up the term paranumonic. Yeah. Um spread mm-hmm. um <laughs> as being the cause of of pyothorax in these animals. Mm-hmm. And and perineumonic spread is a, a real term, right. mostly used in human medicine. Yep. Um but I think because it's not used in veterinary medicine very often, it would have benefited had they explained what they yeah, meant. Okay. And paranumonic spread is not always bacterial spread. Sometimes it's just inflammatory pleural right. fluid. Um so yeah, I just some yeah better more detailed description of what they were talking about yeah. would have been beneficial
0: yeah agreed um but they they you know tried to go through and say yeah. these are the cases we pulled and then they gave fairly you know uh fairly detailed descriptions of the CT findings of the dogs and then the surgical findings of the dogs um that eight eight of the 12 dogs went to surgery um so there were four of the dogs in the study that had a CT but didn't have surgery so um of again, kind of unclear what, you know, usefulness they are in this particular study. But it's helpful to have the information. I'd rather have it than not have it. Um, But so table one is like a big table kind of in the middle of the paper. Um, And it just, it lists the dogs one through 12, gives a lot of the information about them. Um, But if you look, like you said, you know, did they have pleural thickening? You know, sure, if they have pyothorics, I sort of expect them to have some degree (laughs) of response to that um they all had pleural fluid not surprisingly that was one of the inclusion criteria um and but when when i start looking down to the pulmonary abnormalities that were described on ct and then this the, what was found at surgery mm-hmm. like from their uh, their conclusion just reading the abstract is that they were similar and i'm like different 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 yep. different, different different like but they didn't explain it they were different like in every case Yep. And I was like, um, okay, so let me go back. Like, what do they mean? They were like, well, they were similar. And I was like, well, of course they're similar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't expect CT to be way off um, from what you're finding at surgery. So yeah, I guess I was just really disappointed in the lack of similarity yeah. between what they found at CT in these patients and what they found at surgery. Because it was like, for example... The fourth dog, which was the first one that had the CT and surgery, Um, on CT they said there was a single focus in an accessory lung lobe that was about one centimeter, and then at surgery they found a single focus that they said was right caudal um, and accessory, which is weird, I don't know why you'd call that a single focus, or if it was all one, but involved two lobes, if that's what they meant there. The second one, multiple foci, left caudal, left cranial, and right middle lung lobes, and at surgery they found a single focus in the left caudal lung lobe. Like, that's just the first two and they're quite yeah. different. And then you keep going and it's this every time. Single focus left caudal, nothing. Single focus accessory, single focus focus accessory right coddle. So like we're 50-50 there. Um, but like every time uh,
2: yeah. yeah. and when you get when you get to the I can't remember if it's in the results or the discussion, it's uh let's see, it's on page 207 the second paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um you know they're they're talking about um Plural thickness uh-huh. seen on CT, but they decided that the surgeons who didn't find plural thickness that they were the ones that were correct. But then right. in the next paragraph, when it comes to um, lung lesions, mm-hmm. if the surgeons didn't find it, they decided the CT was probably what was correct. Yeah, so like there wasn't how, a gold how standard. You, why, why is it the surgeons correct one time and the CT is right. more correct than? And, I mean, if I had to pick, I'd pick the CT is probably right more often than the surgeon for both because. You know, one you're just relying on your eye and your fingers, and the other you're able to see very small, minute lesions. With, I
1: also uh, think though that the CT also maybe gave them tunnel vision, or the ones that, that did maybe. surgery before the CT, yeah, or um, CT yeah, yeah, before sorry, the surgery, yes, yeah, yes, they, yeah, you just go be. right where the the yeah. radiologist Instead told you to go. Thorough, maybe that's a good point. Yeah.
0: Okay, so I had a couple highlighted statements that I just wrote. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> so in the discussion. See, this one bothered me. CT correctly identified the presence of volume, if stated, of pleural fluid in all eight surgical cases and therefore can be used to reliably predict the presence of fluid. First of all, I think it can, but that statement is wrong for so many reasons. Because if you go back to the actual results, CT said all of these patients had fluid. And in three of the eight dogs that had surgery, the surgeons commented on whether or not there was fluid. And they said there was. The other five dogs, there was no statement. Now, I believe that all the dogs had fluid at surgery, <laughs> mm-hmm. but their statement is incredibly misleading. C- CT correctly identified the presence of fluid and volume, if stated, of plur- in all eight surgical cases. That's yep. not what you reported. That's nope. not at all what you reported. And then the next paragraph, um, I think this was the overreach in what this means. Plural gas was not present in any case which did not undergo pre-imaging thoracocentesis confirming the presence of gas as iatrogenic rather than secondary to the pyothorax or its etiology what i'm sorry what (laughs) you had 12 dogs and the and and i agree that you know you have to consider um iatrogenic introduction of gas as a Mm -hmm. cause for free gas in the dogs that had it But I don't think you can say you've confirmed that the presence of gas is caused by iatrogenic introduction. That's not at all what you can conclude from that. So I was bothered by that. And then there was a misleading statement in like a couple paragraphs down in the next column. If a single focal lesion was present at surgery, CT correctly identified the location of the lesion in all cases and may be reliably used to guide the surgeon to the location of the pathology. That I disagree. That is like a very misleading statement because like... You know, stopped clock is right twice a day. So if you just start naming all of the lesions according to their criteria, like just list every lung lobe according to their criteria, they would have gotten it correctly each time. But they didn't count it. Like it wasn't fully correct if they said there were extra lesions Mm -hmm. or if there weren't like, I don't know. Like I just don't think you can draw that conclusion. And I'm not here to like blame surgeons or try to say is it the radiologist who was right or wrong. I'm just saying they didn't match. The other thing, like that, you know, you you read their objectives, describe the CT findings, compare them to f- surgical findings, and decide the utility of CT and guiding case management. I don't think they described any case where the CT findings would change the management. what you do. Mm-hmm. Like, I, that, I don't think they made that case. And they didn't really even try to. It, I mean, I guess they
1: they said it, but like, I wonder if Uh, they're meaning like medical versus surgical.
0: But that's not what they looked at. Exactly. Like that was not what they looked at in this study. And they did make a comment at one point that you shouldn't use the CT to decide whether or not you should do a lateral thoracotomy or a median sternotomy. And I was like, that seems like the one thing I could take away from, you should do a CT because maybe we can just do a lateral thoracotomy and avoid doing a median sternotomy, get better visualization on the right. But they're like, no, you should just always do a median sternotomy. I'm like... Okay, so what, what is, is CT, CT going to help me with? Because yeah. that's actually clinically my stance, mm-hmm. is that I don't think CT is useful at all.
2: For, it, for, for sorry, pyothorax. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair point.
0: Uh, it's super useful for lots and lots of things. Let <laughs> me Great, somebody's going to take that clip out of context, great. Um, no, I don't think it's useful for, at all for, decide, for figuring out how to manage a case of pyothorax. That, that's genuinely what I think and not, I, I just, I don't, I'd be like, go and explore it yeah, or don't and try medical management. And then if it fails, um,
2: I think if I was a radiologist, I might argue that they didn't actually describe the CT findings. I fair. Mean, these that's are a not, fair point. These are not really radiographic terms. That's and, a fair point. Um, really all they're saying are focal lesions or thickening yeah. or soft tissue, not so much about distribution, intensity. Sure. Um, That's a very fair
1: point. I do have a highlighted section that says, however, Mm -hmm. the use of CT in canine pyothorax has not yet been described.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's what they were saying. They're like, we're the first ones, and we want (laughs) to try to describe it. And again, I want to give them credit for that because that is helpful, and we're talking about it, which we might not be doing um, otherwise. So um, I I think your point, David, is fair that like… You know, would a radiologist come through and, and give you more insight and um, more nuance? Um in my per I don't know, what's what's been your guys' experience with managing pyothorax ran You were saying I you don't had many with honestly, CT. For yeah, you just manage them medically mm-hmm. typically. Yeah. Um David, what's been your experience?
2: But the majority medically, a yeah. very few have I managed surgically and they were they were ones where on radiography, there was a very clear consolidated mm-hmm. single lung lobe, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't mean it may not have responded to medical therapy, right. but it seemed very likely that there was an abscess yeah. or a, a necrotic lobe. Um, and so we made the decision to to remove that yeah. lung lobe along with clearing out the pleural space. Yeah.
0: What about, um, have you done a lot of CTs in these cases to help you make your decision?
2: I don't recall having done a CT on any of them. Yeah,
0: okay. Um, I mean, I've definitely worked places where, like, the surgeons want a CT. They want a CT first, and I'm just like, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, they'll say, well, we want to, you know, kind of know what we're expecting or, you know, to make the decision about whether or not it should be treated medically or surgically, and I'm, Bleh. that's really a struggle. I For me, if you have either evidence or a strong suspicion of like an abscess or a migrating foreign body or something like that. Sure, um surgery makes sense. But again, the the C T has been anecdotally in my experience disappointing in helping to figure out like yes, this is definitively surgical. Um and it's expensive. I yeah. mean at the end of the day <laughs> Like, I don't want to have to euthanize a patient because the owners ran out of money mm-hmm. where like the cost of the CT and the anesthesia associated with it usually will pay for three or four more days in the hospital. Right. Um, at least at the hospitals I've worked at. Maybe that's going to be slightly, but it's going to pay for more time in the hospital. Mm-hmm. It's not going to cover the entire cost of surgery. Um, and the timing of CT, like if it was really good at predicting this case needs surgery and you do it at day one, like, yeah, because I don't want to spend three or four days on medical management waiting until they fail to go to surgery. But in my experience, CT hasn't done that. It hasn't provided that information to say definitively, we feel confident this case is surgical or we feel confident this case should be managed medically. Um,
2: one, one issue I've had with CTs on patients, Um, that have had prior thoracocentesis Mm -hmm. is at least here our radiologists often detect lesions along the pleura the the parietal pleura which you know i think are very likely induced by my needle yeah um Mm -hmm but which they don't feel sure about. And so then we've got lesions that people are potentially tracking down, but which are iatrogenic and not important. And when I say trying to track down, I mean, surgeon goes in trying to track down this lesion, but it's really just a little hematoma created by my needle. Um, So at times it's actually, it has actually complicated the matter. Mm
0: -hmm. And our radiologists here are awesome. Like they're so good. Like you would be hard pressed to find better radiologists anywhere, like full stop. I have full confidence in our radiologists, but we've had, I don't, because I haven't sent an animal with pyothorax to CT at this facility, but I, I have had a number of cases with spontaneous, actual spontaneous pneumothorax. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time, like it's a small n, but every time we've done that, the CT has not been helpful. And I just want to be like, just explore it. Like I just want the surgeon to explore it. and And I get frustrated with papers like this one because – um, somebody else can go. Well, no, there was that paper that came out that said yeah. you should CT the animals before surgery because it it is predictive of what you're going to find. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like we're reading the same paper but getting vastly different, um, you know, kind of impressions from them or interpretations of them. Yeah. And 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 so it's it's dangerous. Um, and then we have some students in the audience here today. Um, and I know when I first started reading papers, like the discussion was the first thing I went to. <laughs> like, I want the take home, right? right? Like, just tell me what I'm supposed to know. The problem is that's written by the authors of the paper who for whatever reason might have their own biases. They might have their own blind spots, um, can't see the confounders or have some agenda that they want, you know, they've decided I want to prove this. And so they that, that's not actually how I want to be reading papers, and that's not how I want you guys to be reading papers. In fact, the best way probably to read a paper is to read the methods and the results, and that's it. <laughs> and just make your own conclusions. It's a little more it's work, it's a little more mental work. Sure. Um, so, yeah.
2: Yeah, and I, I, you know, a common approach is, is to just read the abstract, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think the vast majority of the time you should trust what it says. Yeah. It's been reviewed by presumably experts in the field. Um, but there are times when, and this is a good example, where the abstract doesn't really match no. the results, and um, so without reading the article critically, you wouldn't wouldn't really find that. Yeah. And um, you know, it's I, I think that this these things should have been caught by reviewers, yeah. um, but sometimes reviewers don't always put in full effort, which yep. I can't criticize since they're not being paid yep. <laughs> to review <laughs> articles. Maybe one of the problems, but yeah, um, and. Sometimes the choice, how a journal goes about choosing right. a reviewer is um, just, well, that person published something on a related matter, so they must be an expert and we'll choose them.
0: And they said yes. And they said yes. Uh-huh. So
2: <laughs> it's not always an expert. It's not always somebody that's going to take the time to yeah. look. Because it is a lot of work. It is a lot of work.
0: It's a lot of work to do a good job. It's hard um, to review a paper. Um, and it is kind of a weird way, like how you start getting asked to be reviewed is either like somebody put your name down. Cause when you submit a paper some, some journals will ask like, can you submit, you know, some suggested reviewers and you're like, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) or, or they'll say, can you, you can list some that you don't want us to use. Like definitely don't send it to David Grant. Cause I'm sure he's going to tear this apart. Right. (laughs) That probably
2: happens
0: a lot. Um, I, I do remember like the very, very first time I reviewed a paper though, like I, w- I took it very seriously. I spent a lot of time, but I also didn't want to come across as a jerk. <laughs> and so my dad, who is not medical at all, but he's like an English teacher. And so I sent him like my responses. I'm like, can you just give me feedback if any of these sound too harsh or like if I was mean in it? Cause I didn't want to be mean. I want to be supportive. I want this to be better after this process, but um, I don't do that anymore. But for, I do still think <laughs> about it. Um, it's just not like I'm just mean now. Um, I still try to be supportive and like, but but say like this doesn't make sense. This I don't like yep. this. Um, I you, you need to change it be this. You torn
1: apart at the beginning, so
0: right? That you can fix it. That's the whole point. Yeah. And and I've had I've had both flavors of reviewers. I have some Absolutely. who were just mean. And you're like, you didn't need to be mean. Like, I did put a lot of work into this. Um, and I've had some that were, like, tore it apart, so to speak, but were super supportive. Like, right. okay, we really like what you did here. We really think you need to change these things. And then you leave and you're like, this paper's better now. Thank-. Like, that process actually... And that's the point. It's to make it... Not to change what you're, you're doing. Like, you've done what you've done. But to make it clearer. To make sure that your conclusions are matching what you found. Um, and so, yeah, this is... Um, I was disappointed... <laughs> In the paper, but also that this was added to our list of like required reading for our residents. <laughs> Me too. Like, not going to lie. I was, was kind of shocked when, yeah. when
2: when you sent this out and suggested that it was from that, from yeah. that reading list.
0: That's probably why I wanted to though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, although I don't know what the rationale for putting this on the list, but maybe it's to have an example of papers that you should make your own interpretation from. Right. Um, so just because it's on the reading list, um, it, it's it's on the reading list, right? Not, you should be aware of it you need to be prepared. You need to read this thoroughly because um, as from a critical care standpoint, like when you are debating with a surgeon about what to do with a patient, you need to have this paper and you need to have read it so that when they cite it, you can be like, no, <laughs> <laughs> incorrect. <laughs> Let's read it together. Um, so maybe that's why it's on there. Um, I don't know, but I, I, was, I was a little surprised um, that that was on the list, not gonna lie. Any other final thoughts on that paper? And we can move on to the other one. Sorry if this felt kind of harsh. I do want this uh, to try to be positive. Yeah, I but
2: mean, well, one positive thing I'll have to say is that this is a, from a, oh, I'm sorry. This is out of Royal Veterinary College. I, for a moment, I thought this was out of a private practice, but that's maybe, that's the, next maybe the next one. I think so, the next one is private practice. Yeah, okay. yeah this was our VC. I was going to say, anytime a private practice publishes anything, I think it's great. They're not... Yeah that's not part of their job. They're not getting paid for that. Yeah. So it's impressive.
0: And again, I, I I really don't want this to be against, there was the whole process. I think there were some flaws Um, and it's not just the fault of the authors. Um, and you never know, like maybe what they submitted, maybe one of the reviewers was like, you need to make changes and and now they yeah. changed it against what they wanted. Like that could happen as well. But they were just like, we want to get this out there. So this isn't meant to be a personal attack on anyone.
1: I was just disappointed in a lot of the But well, It does also help, help for setting up for, you know, additional studies yeah on what absolutely yeah
0: um how do you do your study differently how do we add to the literature and mm-hmm. so okay so that first study was on 12 dogs 12 dogs with pyothorax and then the sec- second paper um they describe ultimately 47 cases in, of pyothorax in cats um so that's kind of fun um there's just not nearly enough studies in cats full stop Um, So it's nice to have that. And then this is also a recent one. Um, So their objectives for this paper was um, to report short and long-term outcome in cats treated for pyothorax, and then to identify, if possible, any prognostic indicators. That always makes me groan a little bit, Um, (laughs) as well as determine recurrence rate. I'm not a fan of prognostic indicators because people try to apply them to an individual patient, which is not. How they work. Um, It's really only for populations or resource management or blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I've ranted about that on this podcast before. Um, So, uh, yeah. Who wants to talk about this one? I feel like I'm talking too much.
2: I can go over it. All right. Uh, So, this was a retrospective study, Mm -hmm. which they do acknowledge multiple times, but then they present their materials and methods as if it was a prospective study, which always annoys me, but anyhow. <laughs> um, so it's a retrospective study over, what, well, I guess, um, two year a two-year time span? No, almost 10 years. Almost 10 years, sorry.
0: Yeah, nine yeah. years.
2: Um, and they basically searched their records for animals that had had thoracocentesis, um, and then that's how they came to uh, the cats that ended up in the study, and the inclusion criteria were um, radiographic or ultrasonographic signs of pleural effusion, in addition to cytologic evidence of septic inflammation in the pleural fluid, um, which I question a little bit because there seemed to be the numbers in, in the results yeah. cats that did not have mm-hmm. cytologic evidence of septic or culture, inflammation yeah. or even culture. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they didn't
0: necessarily, yeah, the
2: numbers didn't work um, out for me
1: either. That was a big area of question. Yeah,
2: <laughs> so that, that was a little bit confusing. Um, and then they went into their records and looked at what antibiotics they got, what bacteria were cultured. Um, if they went to surgery, what histologic findings there were, and then looked at both short-term outcome, um, survival, to, survival to discharge, short-term outcome, and then by contacting owners or referring veterinarians to mm-hmm. get long-term follow-up, they describe a standardized approach to management of pyrothorax that was taken in all cases, which implies that yeah. either that there was a standard operating procedure. Mm-hmm. For how all patients would be managed, and as a person who's done quite a few prospective clinical trials, and found that it's hard to get people to follow the SOP prospectively, yeah, it's really hard to imagine that all these cats' yeah, treatments followed the same order, yeah, um, when they're there wasn't the a plan. Pretty impressive. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, and like you said earlier, this is a private practice and yeah. I would say it's probably easier in a smaller, yep. fewer staff, less turnover private practice than it would be yeah. in a giant, you know, uh, university setting, you know, but Yeah. even so, you're right. Like how protocolized was it really? Yeah. But okay.
2: So I don't I don't I don't think right. what were likely variations from their little algorithm probably mattered a whole lot. Right. Um, so I won't, it was just I, a won't bold statement. I won't go on about it <laughs> <Sure>. any further. Sure. <laughs> um so I guess results, uh, they thought that they determined the cause of the pyothorax in only three cases, um, with those being um, a penetrating trauma, a penetrating foreign body, and um, what presumably was aspiration pneumonia following dental surgery, which um, very definitely can happen. It happens mm-hmm. in humans. It's a fairly well-known thing. Um, Interest, other interesting things um, on cytology of the portal fluid, mm-hmm. they found uh, no intracellular bacteria in 30% of samples. I found that very interesting. Yep. Um, and other interesting things. Um, the most common bacteria cultured were Pastorella, mm-hmm. which is uh, obviously a very common cat oral Bacterium. Yep, and um, that'll come back up when we get to their yeah. discussion on <laughs> potential etiology yeah. of pyothorax in cats. Yep. Um, uh, a little crit- another little critique I have is in Table Two, which lists um, historical and clinical findings in cats with pyothorax. Um, they found that forty percent had difficulty in breathing, and twenty three percent had dyspnea. I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> Those are the same thing in my book. Um, The definition of dyspnea is difficulty breathing. (laughs) So, so
0: what I don't know. So I've harped on this before. So dyspnea refers to the sensation of breathlessness, like that panicky feeling you get when you can't breathe. So what I don't understand on this is: do all the patients with like, or were all the dyspneic patients also included in difficulty breathing, or were those separate categories? Um, Was difficulty breathing like? all of the abnormal breathing up to and including dyspnea or does dyspnea, were they using a completely different definition of the term?
2: So uh, what I think, yeah. what I think is clear is the reader has no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> <Yes>. um,
0: <laughs> Plus they spelled dyspnea. They did yeah. that, that, they that did European that spelling. Times. No, it's yeah. a European study. I always blah, get, can't pronounce it right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um Another interesting finding, which I've definitely observed and, and try to, relate to people that I'm teaching um, is that they only found a leukocytosis in 47 Mm percent of these cats. Mm -hmm. Um, We know where the white blood cells are. (laughs) (laughs) Six six, uh, of the cats. So what is that? That's like 3 percent roughly of the cats were actually neutropenic. Um, And then eight cats had absolutely no blood work abnormalities at all. Yeah. Um, So that's it's what, like almost five percent, something like that. Those are like I do think those yeah. kinds of
0: descriptions are really helpful. Absolutely. Um. I. I actually, I had a lot fewer issues with this paper than I did the first mm-hmm. one. Um. There were still. Again, I've never read a paper and been like, "That was perfect." There's nothing wrong. No. But, mm-hmm. um. But I. I actually really did like. I, I. think they tried hard not to overreach, and mostly like just here's a description. Here's what we found. Yeah. Um. Which yeah. I thought was good. But so, yeah. So the. Bit, I think things. the
2: big take home from that is that. Cats you don't, don't have, have to have respiratory signs. They don't yep. have to have a fever. They don't have yeah. to have leukocytosis, and yet they can still have pus on their chest.
0: Yeah, and they even kind of said that in the discussion. Yeah. Like, any cat that's just kind of mm-hmm. off, you, it, yeah. it should probably be on your list somewhere. And I've,
2: I've yeah. definitely seen cats yeah. come in for chronic weight loss and poor appetite, and, and yeah. that's what they have. You just stumble upon it, to be it's honest. It's kind
0: of impressive, though, that a cat can, like, mm-hmm. do that, and they're just like, I just walled it off, and, you know, I'm getting by, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're kind of amazing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, other big things, and then I'll be quiet. We can discuss. <laughs> um, was some cats did go to surgery mm-hmm. if they failed medical treatment, yeah. which was a little bit vague on what failed meant, yeah. but weren't improving or fluid um, recovery each day was not declining right. or was staying septic or, or very uh, yeah. inflammatory. Um, and in those cats, um, they found... In um, only two of the cats that went to surgery out of eight, um, did they find lung lobe lesions that needed to be removed, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was interesting since they proposed that they think the origin of pyothorax in cats is likely parameumonic spread, meaning mm-hmm. spread from pneumonia. Mm-hmm. So I guess I would have thought that if you had eight cats that you had to take surgery because they weren't getting better, that you probably would find the lung lesion that led mm-hmm. to the pleural effusion. But... Um, nope. not, not necessarily. Nope. Um, and outcome, uh, 72% of cats mm-hmm. survived the first two weeks, um, after discharge and after a year, 68% were still alive. Um, yeah. So p- pretty good given how severe a condition this really is. Yeah and And that felt right you know just for what i experienced
0: like you know and that's usually like some of them are going to die but like they they do they can do well and if they do well they can do very well and they can go on and live their lives and never look back
2: and that survival rate was not censored for euthanasia so that includes euthanasia here i'm
0: um although they um am i wrong well, no, uh, kind of. So they there were seven cats euthanized after diagnosis before any treatment. Those cats mm-hmm. were excluded, I think, from the 47. So the 47... Right. 47- they had to at least attempted treatment to Correct. be included, um, which I was really pleased with actually mm-hmm. um, because it's really hard in veterinary studies to do any type of survival rate when you include humane euthanasia. Yep. Um, so I actually, it's hard, but I was really pleased with how they addressed that mm-hmm. by one, excluding cats that were euthanized that didn't get treatment. Like that should right. not be in your uh, survival calculations right. at all. Um, and they tried to explain, I think the ones that did end up getting euthanized, yes, what the reasons were and so that you mm-hmm. could make, like we, we really felt like it was because of medical decline um, not for other non-medical factors, as much as you can. Yeah. Um, so I think they handled that actually pretty well. Um, so I was pleased with that.
2: Uh, maybe I'll stop there and we can discuss, and yeah. maybe somebody else will bring up the one other thing I was going to mention.
1: You had a lot of mine highlighted. Okay. <laughs>
2: um,
1: I thought it was interesting that the database search, um, 770 cases, and it got narrowed down to the 40, Um it's but a lot of work to do a retrospective. It, it <laughs> mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Um. But also that, um, all cats should just live inside. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. And and they said that that really wasn't a prognostic or no. a indication. Predictor, but they yeah. also said that seventy-eight percent of the cats had access to outdoors. So. Yeah,
0: and most of them lived in like or they lived in multi-cat households, things like that, which was interesting. Yes, yes that yeah. one too.
1: So- um.
0: What else? What else were you thinking? I'm trying to I know I'm going. I have a lot of notes. writing
1: and notes on here, so I'm trying to pick the most important ones. So,
0: yeah, one of my biggest issues, um, and we alluded to this at the beginning, was just what their inclusion criteria were, um, because it didn't seem like they followed their own rules, right? Um, and the numbers just didn't add up. So they started with 55 cases, and then they eliminated the ones that just didn't get treatment at all. And, um, so that was fine. But then when they went, I'm trying to remember where the actual numbers are in this paper, but, um, when they went through, I think it's under diagnostic tests, under results, um, uh, bilateral pleural effusion, intracellular bacteria were observed in 29 out of the 47. So 62%. Okay, cool. No evidence of intracellular bacteria in 14 of 47. Okay. Well, that doesn't add up to 29 and 14 doesn't add up to 47, um, so when they were, they were describing the 47 yeah. cats, it never added up to all 47. And, no. and I was unclear on who had what. And there was, I think like six or eight cats that as far as I could tell mathematically were completely unaccounted for and why they were included. Um, so, cause we had bacterial culture results from plural fluid for 38 of 47 cats. Okay. I'm just going to ask whose phone is making the noise. Cause I can hear it. Um, mm-hmm. so bacterial culture results from pleural fluid were available for 38 to 47 cats. So there's nine cats. And then, uh, so it just, I wanted to know, like, tell me about each cat because some of the cats might've been accounted for in multiple categories, but I I just couldn't, I couldn't account for all of them. So no. I felt like there were some cats that didn't have, a positive culture and they didn't see intracellular bacteria that they included and they, they mentioned later like well some of the cats were on antibiotics before they came to us but they never just clarified like yep. we included these for these reasons and I would have probably been okay with that because I get it um, depending on how many that is or the nice thing I think if if people can do this is if you say okay we had these eight cases that were sort of ambiguous here are the stats if we include them and here here's how it changes if we exclude them something like that might have been really helpful like that's that's the kind of stuff i like to recommend as a reviewer to say hey this was unclear um if you had some of these cases please just explain like where the vagueness is and then maybe run the stats in both ways, and just tell us because maybe it doesn't change anything, or maybe it does. But I want to know about that. So I was kind of bothered by that. Yeah, that was probably my biggest complaint with this this article. Overall, I, I, like I said, I, I I thought this one was pretty good. Yeah. Um,
2: the only but, other thing in the discussion that I I think is worth bringing up is yeah. that um, is that they they propose that as uh, some other articles mm-hmm. have suggested that paraneumonic spread yeah. rather than bite wounds is likely to be the cause or the route of plural infection in these cats and they based that on the fact that pastorella was the most common bacteria grown here and that that comes from a cat mouth i would argue that maybe that means cat bites to the thorax right. are yes. a cause of biothorax yeah. um, and though we often shave their thorax to put in the thoracostomy tube we don't shave the entire thorax nope. on both sides and as They pointed out some of these cats had been ill mm-hmm. for quite a long time, which yeah. means, like most abscesses, the skin overlying mm-hmm. it could have healed over, yep. and mm-hmm. yet the infection is sort of sealed inside. Yep. Um, the other yeah, thing, too. like I said, is that you know, for the cats they had to take to surgery, only a quarter of them had a lung lesion. Yeah. Um, which, if it was due to pneumonia, you would think that that would, um, would, uh, Show up, have,
0: yeah. We would have seen that at surgery. And then
2: the other thing is, why do cats get pneumonia? You know, I I think of cats as being <laughs> right. very Hearty. resistant to pneumonia. Yeah. You know, I think of spontaneous or idiopathic yeah. pneumonia as maybe being a dog thing, but yeah. not very much of a cat thing. And yeah, um, you know, I don't. Uh, contrary to dogs, I can't think of a whole lot of infectious, transmissible organisms causing no. pneumonia in cats. And no. cats also don't seem to aspirate nearly as much mm-hmm. as dogs. So
0: I just put a bunch of questions marks convinced by this. this. I, I I feel the same way. And I, I was kind of mad at myself because I wish I had looked into this earlier and would have had time to look at some of the articles they referenced. And I that, that's on my to-do list to go back and be like, okay, mm-hmm. this parannemonic spread rather than bite wounds. And so it's as current evidence suggests paranemonic spread rather than bite wounds as previously maybe the most common root of infection. And my first question is how are you going to determine the etiology Mm -hmm. of these? Like, how do you know that um, even if, so even if you go to surgery with a cat that has a pyothorax and you find some, how do you know it didn't go the other direction? How do you know it didn't start with a bite wound causing pyothorax that then eroded into the lung?
2: Yeah. Or it was, uh, so, was a migrating foreign body that went through both. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So
0: one, so I have to go back because I admit, I haven't gone back to the the articles they reference. One from 96, 2000, 2005. To me, I'm not going to lie, because I don't think the authors of this article tried to, draw many conclusions from no. from what they reported. They're just mm-hmm. like, it felt like a, a paragraph that got added because the reviewer requested it. Yeah, <laughs> That's what it felt like to me. It was like, uh, you know, they probably had talked about like, hey, we think this is probably from, you know, bite wounds and things like that. That's what I would have thought. And then somebody's like, nope, here's a bunch of articles you got to reference. And I'm just like, meh. Mm-hmm. I, so I, I'm unconvinced. But got to be honest, I need to go back and look at those articles to figure out like what they did. How are they making this assertion? Because I'm just struggling to even theoretically come up with how you would determine the etiology from a cat that's had pyothorax for three months. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) unless these were like experimentally infected cats. But even then, then, like, "Ah, that's not what happens in real life. So I don't know. So I was bothered by that as well. But I, I did not have the time or the energy yeah. to go and do the individual investigation myself. Apologies. But I, think,
2: I think really big positives are, again, the, the take home that cats don't have to have what you would think would be obvious signs of severe infection mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to have pyothorax that as we, I think, practice mm-hmm. um, administering a potentiated penicillin is pretty effective mm-hmm. for the vast majority of these infections, uh, that nocardia is not very common despite the fact it's, in all the textbooks about pyothorax, everybody freaks out about it. Yeah, um, and that with treatment, at least here they, you know, you well. did tubes that they tend to do quite well. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that they can't do well with drainage via thoracocentesis. Yeah, I suspect that the majority of them would not do nearly as well, but um, also just at least with the treatment rude. protocol that they use. <laughs> yeah. It, it, they, you know, cats did quite well. Yeah,
0: And they, I think they did a good job in their discussion of saying, hey, yeah. this protocol worked well for our cats. This was not a comparative study. So we okay. can't say this was better than that or better than this or worse than that. Um, they had too few numbers of cats that ended up going to surgery. Um, again, they're, they're sort of like, what was our determining, like it's time to go to surgery was a little bit vague, but I think that's how it is clinically yeah, too. Absolutely. Um, so I, I get that. Like, you're just like, mm-hmm. ah, it just seems like it's not getting better. You talk to the clients and that, you know, you, you make that call. Um, but uh, I think, what they described is also what at least I'm used to most people doing. Yeah. You have a cat with a pyothorax, you put some chest tubes in, you start lavaging it. You do that for a few days. If they're not getting better, you talk about surgery. And that seems to be working. So it makes me feel better about how we're doing things. Like there's
1: there wasn't anything um, that says we should reconsider that strongly. And speaking um, of um, seems to be working, um, I thought it was helpful that they mentioned um, that the single needle or intermittent thoracocentesis is often ineffective and actually is – associated with the worst clinical outcomes. They had one reference for that. There's other
0: references that show differently,
1: but I just would never
0: want to do that. One, like technically that's going to be way harder. It just seems, I don't know. It sounds terrible. (laughs) Like for the cat, for me, like uh, having to do a new thoracocentesis and are you doing it bilaterally, unilaterally, Um, especially now with like the the myla catheters that are so easy to place. You know, 20 years ago when we're putting like giant tubes in anesthetizing the cat and like, doing that Ooh, that trocar method Blah. yeah that's terrifying mm-hmm. um but like the mylas make it really easy and i've used mylas even though they're relatively small like a 14 gauge mila, you can flush those and you can drain those pretty well some people really want they, they didn't comment on the size of tubes they i don't mm-hmm. think right i don't mm-hmm. think i saw that i didn't see anything. um it would have been interesting to know like what kind of chest tubes they were using they talked a little bit about how it was lavage but um like just size of the tubes or like what they were using It would have been cool to know that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I personally have had pretty good luck with just the 14-gauge mylas, even in a pyothorax. Some people are like, oh, you're not going to be able to flush out the pus. I'm like, it seems to work pretty well, Um, anecdotally. So
1: Another thing I hadn't actually heard of is uh, the interpleural local anesthetics.
0: Yeah. I've done that before. I really think it helps. I'm not a particular (laughs) fan, not going to lie. Yeah. Like it feels like you're it. giving intrapus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> correct? Like that, mm-hmm, you know, because you have to empty it out first and then you have to put it back in. And I, so I don't do it, okay? No, they just need pain management. Yeah. Um,
2: I have no proof behind it, but I've always been a bigger is better, uh, yeah, chest tube person because yeah. I've you know seen what comes out when you do the thoracocentesis yeah. and then put in you know a big 20, uh, 20 French, um, yeah or a tube and then seen big chunks come out oh
0: it's definitely faster um, and more satisfying yeah. but
2: that doesn't mean that those chunks yeah. wouldn't have broken down over time and, and come out in a smaller tube
0: yeah and that's kind of been my experience where and you're probably leaving some crud behind like in every yeah. one of these cases no matter the size of the tube um, In my in my mind like it makes sense that a bigger tube is it, it, again you can definitely flush fluid in faster and you can remove it faster there's no doubt about that bigger side holes means you can get bigger and I've had the same thing where you just get these nasty cheesy chunks of grossness mm-hmm. it's very satisfying um, but I've also done mylas because you can put them in a weight cat. It's pretty easy, and I've had good success with yeah. those too. So um, until somebody does that perspective, like whatever you decide to do, I will support you. Just put sure. you know put some tubes in. But um, I my preference for the mylas is more just about patient comfort. Like there's less rib separation, and I just think they're yeah. they're not as uncomfortable oh, sure. for them. But um, they're they're both uncomfortable. But uh, yeah, like my gut says the same thing. Like it probably would be better with a big tube, but I just haven't necessarily. Observe that, and I haven't Great. seen any studies saying differently. So, for what that's worth,
2: Ram, what did you think about the treatment duration? It was a uh, range from twenty-eight to one hundred and eighty days of antibiotic therapy.
1: Yeah, actually, I think I highlighted that. <laughs> <laughs> um, antimicrobial microbial therapy was one of the questions I had too, because they did both cultures as well as tissue mm-hmm. biopsies and sampling, and it said that the nocardia was only found in the two that they actually sampled and did um, histopath on. Um, so I don't know it just goes against my gut. <laughs> what does <laughs> to do, what do you mean? to do antibiotics for that long, but did they oh, yeah. but how did they know when to stop? Did they do more culturing? Or did yeah they,
2: yeah, they, I mean they they that's, said that's it That's always the hard part they said yeah. it, they based it on on control radiographs, which I'm not sure what that means. I think maybe that means recheck, um, yeah. clinical status, bacterial culture, and sensitivity results. Um, I kind of doubt that they did. Right. repeat thoracocentesis for months mm-hmm. <laughs> with culture. So I'm not quite sure what they're talking about About there. Yeah. Um,
0: this is always tough, right? Like we yeah. don't know no. how long to treat these patients. And I think most people's response is going to be, err on the side yep. of treat them forever. Yeah. Because they've already <laughs> shown us that blood work is not really helpful so oh yeah and there isn't really going to be like a good way to know and the problem is also there's probably going to be a lot of individual variation Mm -hmm. um in this and um but i have serious concerns about antibiotics for that long obviously i mean even if it's necessary i have concerns about it right you're just like oh what are all the knock-on effects they're gonna those animals are gonna have horrible gi signs for the rest of their lives (laughs) um i mean hopefully not but It's hard without any actual guidance. Um, But what I will say is every time I look into, okay, for this disease, how long should we treat for? There's almost never, um, with a few very important exceptions, there's almost never specific veterinary information. But whenever you go to the human literature, you'll find that it used to be treat them forever. And then they've done research and been like, actually, significantly shorter courses of antibiotics are just fine. Because you have an immune system, hooray. Yep. And we just need to get the worst of it under control, clear out the pus, and then the immune system will do the majority of the work. And so, yeah, I don't know. Um, how long How long do you guys treat yours for routinely? Like if you just had to pick a number that you think I usually do this?
1: Probably about a month.
0: A month? If it's something serious. I, know that, I yeah. know that
2: in the past, that's what, you know, uh, we five. often don't do the rechecks. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's often been me making a recommendation yeah. and I, in the past I've often recommended... A month. I think the last last one, I think, you know, the animal was in the hospital a week and then I sent it home with two more weeks. Two more and weeks. That was it. Yeah. Um, you know, knowing that most folks with pneumonia get treated for two weeks or less. Yep. I'm humans. Yep. Um, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have an issue with it being shorter.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't know. Um, so yeah, my whole thing is like two weeks if they're clinically doing well might be sufficient two Mm -hmm. or three weeks, two or three weeks is kind of the number I have in my head. Um, again, that's assuming they're doing well. Um, that's assuming they don't have comorbidities that make them particularly susceptible or that they're, you know, immunosuppressed, but like for the average cat, I'm thinking if, especially if they're in the hospital for that three to five days getting everything lavaged out and they're improving, like, yeah, like another week like past that of antibiotics might be sufficient. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. Um, but I, I suspect like most things, it will be shorter courses necessary than we initially think. Yeah. Um, we just got to give our, our, our immune systems more credit <laughs> than mm-hmm. we do sometimes. Um, but, and, and again, this, they that wasn't the point of the study. And they weren't trying to make comments about that. They just described what happened. So I, I was generally pretty pleased that they weren't trying to overreach um, yep. in their conclusions. They were like, here's what we did. And here's what we found. Like yes. they, they, they weren't like, you should all do this. Um, so that was, that was good. I think they did a good job of that. And I think because they had a, a reasonably protocolized treatments, is like the the treatments were fairly similar across the cats, Mm -hmm. um, which is is also helpful, even just the fact that they were medically managed and they didn't all get CTs, you know, like that, that was comparing that to the first study I thought was really helpful. Um, So, yeah. So thank you to this group, um, again for to, to you know both both groups who put this out. Um, but I, yeah, I did I did really like this. It's nice to have um, something to sort of support what you're doing. A little yeah. bit of like, hey, it's reasonable to to do this in these cats. They can do quite well long term. Um, the long term follow up was I, we haven't really commented on, but they did a good job of trying to follow up, and they had yeah. a yeah. lot of them. Yeah, there were only a few that they didn't have the long term follow up in. Yeah. Um, so that was actually quite helpful um, because I feel like most of the time it's like until discharge, and then you just. Lose contact. Right. So they did a good job of, of following up with these patients and clients. So that was helpful too. And
1: there's one other thing I could bring up, you know, we, we do things based on something that we've always done. Yeah. Um, and we can use some of the human medicine to maybe guide some of our changes in the way we do things. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing they mentioned was controversy in human medicine, as far as how often we're lavaging yeah. due to yeah. um, nosocomial infections. And they yeah. said that, um, you know, two to three times daily lavages can increase that. So I don't know yeah. if that's something we could look at too.
0: Yeah, it, it's a good, I'm glad you brought that up because that, that was interesting because um, they didn't really find a, I mean, they weren't specifically looking for nosocomial infections, but it mm-hmm. didn't seem like it was, now they all got the same treatment. Um, right, so, right. Um, but it didn't seem like there was a huge rate of, Unexpected complications. I guess right. I don't know, yeah. Um, but yeah, There's they weren't looking for that. So it is interesting. More
1: trauma and inflammation yeah. by flushing it more frequently. Or yeah, mm-hmm. get away with doing it less. Frequently? Fair point. Well, yeah. and just it's labor intensive. So if you yeah. can, if once
0: a day is just as good as three times a day, maybe once a day is fine. Yeah. So that's a, no, that's a good point. I, I know
2: I've never, I've never done it three times a day. I mean, typically for me, it's been once a day. Yeah. Um, but I've, I also have typically had these animals the majority of that i've treated have been on continuous suction. Oh really? So okay. So there hasn't been a whole lot to at least initially for the first yeah. day or so okay. and then i've taken them off and switched over to intermittent aspiration and flushing like once a day.
0: Gotcha. Okay, that's that's interesting. I, I have not routinely put them on continuous suction. Mm-hmm. Um, I The continuous suction for free air, absolutely, but I feel yeah. like they just, I don't know. I, in my experience, when you have them on continuous suction, when there's fluid, it clogs, it complains, and then like the techs get really annoyed because the machine is just constantly like, causing you, problems.
1: But yeah. Would you include the grenades as continuous suction, though? Oh, yeah, that? it doesn't have to be. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, that's a good point. So it's not I, necessarily...
2: I, and I should have clarified, in dogs... I have had them on yeah. continuous suction. Yeah. I have not done that in cats. So I feel like it's yeah. uh, very traumatic and terrifying yeah. for cats.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, but I hadn't really considered that. But you're right. Like just putting a grenade with negative suction mm-hmm. could, could do the same thing. Um, yeah. Well, overall, any, any final thoughts, comments about pyothorax in general? Um, anything you're going to do differently? Sounds like maybe Ryan you're going to flush not them less CT? often. <laughs> not going to try really hard to not do a CT <laughs> and a dog or, or a cat cuz honestly in this one like it didn't seem like it, it changed anything for the cats. Mm-hmm. As yeah. best I could tell. They didn't really even mention it. Um I'm going we're going to have to talk to the radiologist after this see what they think. See yeah. if they're like no 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 it's super helpful. I think um, it was
2: great to see that you know like you said what we're doing in cats they they did what we 20%. do and it works mm-hmm. and I think cool. the only thing here that maybe I would I want to know about do differently but um, given that, uh, pastorella was the most common mm. organism, um, and convenia is indicated for pastorella infections, um, you know, it might be nice to give a cat a single injection. Uh, I don't know that I feel comfortable that, <sighs> that covers all the other organisms is, right? that are in yeah. there. Yeah.
1: Cause it said that, 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 it was at least two bacterial.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Things. Right. Yeah. So it wouldn't necessarily cover the other, um,
1: Am
0: I remembering, I think there was at least one cat that mm-hmm. had been treated with like every, once a week or every other week convenia by the RDVM. Yes. I, I think they commented That's on that. That's But I don't remember if they said what that particular cat's outcome is. Not that yeah. you should draw a lot from an N of mm-hmm. 1. But at yeah. least one person agreed with you and was like, mm-hmm. hey, yeah. it's worth considering. I mean, certainly from the standpoint of it's easier. Yeah. Um, so, um, what I guess I'd have to look, but it's a cephalosporin. So probably penetration would be just as good as any other one, but I'd have to look at sepovisin specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a good point. Uh, yeah, I think your, you know, your point Ryan, of maybe, I feel like I usually do like maybe twice daily lavage for the first couple of days and then, you know, stop, but like how long to do it for. Um, but yeah, I think the big thing for me, um, for the combination of these is I feel better recommending against doing a CT. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure. just like, ah, it's just really hard for me to justify that extra expense. So both of these studies sort of confirm that for me, despite mm-hmm. their intentions. Um, and yeah, that otherwise um, cats with pyothorics, as, as I felt like, would do well, and the treatment we're doing generally seems to work pretty well. So yep. cool. Well, thank you guys again. Um, appreciate you talking. And uh, yeah, I think I think David, you're you're doing uh, yeah. next week articles, right?
2: Yep, absolutely.
0: That's super I'm excited exciting. for him. So, all right. Well, thank you guys for joining. Thank Appreciate you. you being here. And we will see you next time.
1: Bye.